If you would please turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 5, be towards the end of the chapter in verse uh, 13. Joshua 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Skipping to verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of the day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only... Rahab the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the devoted things to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron, are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword.
But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is God's word. is my water. Um, let's see. I'm in the middle of Joshua with seventh graders. And there's certainly worse places to be. I wouldn't say the book's second nature yet, but um, it's interesting that no matter how many new things you see, it kind of seems like all the things you saw first keep becoming more and more important. It's not like they fade in importance with all these other new things. They, they tend to build on each other. And there's just a handful of truths that emerge, at least to me, that I keep coming back to over the years. So the question I'm going to ask you about this before we work our way back to it is, what was the most valuable thing in Jericho? Now, up to this point in the book of Joshua, you, you have the ever-present, invisible side of things. You, you're opened with the hearts of God's people being counseled repeatedly, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous. And, you know, why do you have to keep telling somebody to be something, like a class, to be quiet? Well, because they're not. And having seen what Joshua saw, I think it's very important in life. Yesterday's battle is yesterday's battle. And it's not today's or tomorrow's. And they don't all come at you in the same way. And so they're told to be strong and courageous. He sends in the spies doing his due diligence, I guess, which is what a general does, which he had learned from Moses. But it would appear that he learned something else from that since he and Caleb came back the only two of the 12 advocating for courage he only sent two. I guess he understands courage is in shorter supply than fear, though both are contagious. And so they come back and they report what Rahab has told them. All the hearts of the people melt. There is no spirit left in any man. We've heard about the Red Sea. What just happened on the southeastern border with Sion and Og confirms all of that. We just, we've turned to jelly. And you go home and report that. 
And then you get instructions about staying back a thousand yards from the ark, I assume, so everyone can see it. And then you're told a specific way to cross that the ark or the feet of the priest carrying the ark will hit the water and the water will part. And as long as that holds, I guess, what are we talking about? Two million people will go across and certain men will grab 12 stones out of that river. And they'll make an altar right there. I think it was a Gilgal. And then he says things to them like, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You tell them that God parted this river. Well, these and this seem to indicate to me that the kids are going to be right there looking at it. But they're not all going to live in Gilgal. So how are they going to look at it? Apparently, it's more in Disney World. God expects you to take your kids to. Apparently, they were sent down here for the very purpose of asking the question. You'll see something like it with Jacob when he comes back to the promised land. And God says, go back to Bethel, where I promised you. All of these kids that you now have, take them there. Show them that spot, that little piece of geography where I promised them to you so that they'll understand their living, breathing promises of God. And then you get to a couple of sacraments, circumcision and Passover. What's a sacrament? It's an outward, visible, or tangible sign of an inward, invisible, or intangible reality. And so here's this Passover, which of course kind of forecasts what's coming with Christ. But at least if you're only, even if you're only looking back, this is where God made a distinction, his words, between Egypt and Israel. His kids get treated differently. That's, that's a mentality. That's the mentality in which we raise our children. You're not like everybody else. And then you get to probably my favorite part of the book of Joshua. God had already told Joshua, I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of the people as I did with Moses. So that they'll know, as I was with Moses, so I am with you. And the first thing he did was publicly, where he parts the river at flood stage. You know, you see one guy parting a giant body of water, you probably don't count on seeing that again. And sadly, people who could have didn't. But now, that's not just a story for people who are either too young to remember it or weren't born at all. It's a reality. But I guess what I like about this little episode is it's private. You know, we need public confirmation. I think that's what you're looking for when you nominate someone for officer. Yes, you need the person of good repute whose gifts seem to have ministered to people around them and characters up to snuff. But you know, the first question I always asked, the only question, I remember why she always had his question that he would ask, and you know, we all had our pet questions that we'd ask, kind of. And mine was, do you want to do this? I mean, yes, we need to know that your wife and family's on board, and yes, we want to know your testimony, and we want it to be a credible professional faith. But if any man desires this office, well, then that's a good thing. You know, the inside 
has to match the outside, and you constantly have the invisible spilling over in these stories as to who's courageous and who ain't, as to who's coveting and who's not. You know, even in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy uses the word heart 49 or 50 times. That's not a New Testament development. In fact, it's the heart where in Deuteronomy he says, this is how I'll judge your king and the people. So he keeps aiming at it with be strong and courageous. So now you have this moment where Joshua, I don't know, I always pictured it at night, but now looking back at it, I don't know why I did that. It seems like he's getting a moment alone. And he looks up. And there's somebody with a sword, a drawn sword, unholstered, if you will. And you're a commander. And you have to go forward and deal with it. And he does, strong and courageously. Or you for us are for our adversaries. I think that's probably a common mistake for a lot of us, isn't it? Am I right or are they? And the answer came back, no. No. What kind of answer is that? I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. The real question here is, are you with me? I have a plan. And it's going to happen. And you want to be, as it's become de rigueur to say in our society, on the right side of that history. I mean, there is a big difference, isn't there, between asking God to bless your plans and following him one step at a time, though maybe you don't know what all his plans are. He's not real big on agendas, is he? And so he has his own personal, private Moses moment that you know he's envied for 40 years. That burning bush story, you know that was a legend in its own time. And you were kind of his bat boy. You were more than that. And everybody's about to realize that if they hadn't already. But you kept hearing. I mean, how many times would you have asked Moses about that? What did that look like? When did you realize it was talking to you? When did you realize it wasn't an it? It's a deal with his shoes. That dirt's dirt. This dirt's holy. Just because the bush isn't burning up doesn't mean you won't. Moses hid his face. When God comes to you in a way that you've only imagined, there's a little bit of dispute. Is this Michael the archangel, archangel or is it God? I, I tend to think that this is repeating a, a new version of what happened. I tend to go with God, but you don't have to. Either way, it's a divine, heavenly moment. When it becomes yours, when your faith becomes yours and not somebody else's story, there's real courage in that, isn't there? What you've heard about, you've now seen and experienced. You can talk people out of a lot of things, but not that. And so I think I've read two different commentators, and they both disagree on this, but I'm going with Ralph Davis because I always go with Ralph Davis. And he'd say, take the big six out, 513 through 65 is one unit. 
That conversation didn't necessarily end. It continued in verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once, and thus you shall do for six days. Now, I'm sure the look on Joshua's face, you're, you're looking at someone, in some, a city that's on complete lockdown with a giant wall there, and God's saying, See, we got them right where we want them. Well, what do you see? You should probably just see the Lord standing there and not looking at the walls in life because the walls can be very imposing and you might not want to focus on those. And then he gives them the specific instructions of one day for six days, seven one time for six days, and seven times on the seventh. And he uses the phrase, before the Lord, twice. Once for the priest bearing the seven trumpets of rams and once for the fighting men. Before the Lord, the Lord follows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It may be into battle, maybe the valley of the shadow of death, but I'll fear no evil because thou art with me. And so you do that. And then you get to verse 17. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers and we sent. But you keep yourselves from the devoted things or things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. We've talked more than once in my first Samuel Sunday school class about the value vocabulary, the words like worth and worthless and scorn and despise and esteemed and honor and dishonor. But it, generally in the Bible, it comes back when people say, worthy are you to open the scroll and its seals, when the angels say that. For you ransom people for God with your blood. You placed the worth of your very blood on them, therefore worthy are you in their sight and ours. What you value largely determines your value. You covet things devoted to destruction, and guess who you're devoting to destruction? We have a tendency to become what we want. Now, was Achan supposed to have a full appreciation of all that would happen there? Probably not. Adam and Eve didn't have a full appreciation of what dying meant, I guess. But God has always expected his children to take him at his word. And so, what turned out to be the most valuable thing in Jericho? A prostitute. I could do worse than stopping right there and going home. I know that's the kind of thing we hear at church. Was that really how we react in life? Do we see things that way? So, where does her worth lie? 
Well, Hebrews puts it like this, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given the spies a friendly welcome. I wonder whether there's some long-standing sin in your life which has gripped you, cost you, left you spiritually demoralized. You know what you wish you could rewind and undo. If someone came along offering you a chance to finally break away from that part of your life and start fresh, would you give them a friendly welcome? Like Zacchaeus? Like the woman in Luke 7 who wiped his feet with her hair? Like the woman caught in the act in John 8? Like Mary Magdalene from whom he cast out seven demons? I also wonder if Rahab's son was predisposed to give a Moabitess a friendly welcome when she came to glean in his fields. And maybe he could see her worth for no other reason than that his mother had been a Canaanite prostitute. And considering the bloodline in question, I think I might have severely underestimated the life-altering, history-defining power of a friendly welcome. A woman who repeatedly put a price on herself met a God who transformed her into something priceless. I wonder how the years went leading up to that in her mind. having calloused her conscience to do what she does. Because I don't care what the values of the society are that you live in. You're still created in God's image. And somewhere, and maybe it had only been years before, something's crying out to you. This, this is not life. It's just a living. This is not what you were made for. And then I guess at some point, maybe like Matthew sitting at the tax booth, having already walked away from one life, he's going to walk away from another one. From what I can tell, the culture wasn't all excited about forgiving people who sold out to Rome. You know, Jesus thinks really got to work out. Where are you going to go then? I mean, I know it reads like he just saw Jesus and left. People don't just say something and leave. Even Saul of Tarsus. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? There's always something going on below the surface that maybe no one else sees. She saw two spies. She lied like a champ. Kind of like she had done it before. And, you know, they're, sitting, they're laying there under the roof. Y your life is in the hands of a woman who sells herself out. This is not looking good for you. 
She lies, and, she, and you come back, and you say, we're happy, but we're curious. Are you the one person in this city? And she said, well, we have heard what the Lord did at the Red Sea. And who did she hear that from? Don't say missionaries. I mean, you know, if you think God needs anybody to speak for him, just think again. The Holy Spirit, somebody's conscience, and two spies. That's not a formula for a ministry, is it? And yet, she's in Hebrews 11. Her name pops up quite a bit. It pops up in James, and it almost always pops up with the word prostitute. It's interesting that it says that over and over and over, and yet that ain't her legacy, is it? Sadly, by contrast, we get a different legacy. We observe an Israelite who valued shiny things more than, I don't know, God's unshiny people. He confessed to breaking the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. Um considering that, I guess, his parents left Egypt with quite a bit of gold and silver and nice clothes. I guess you could add greed to the list. God convicted him of breaking the sixth commandment, if you keep reading forward in chapter 7. You've stolen. I, I don't think you probably need a degree from seminary to see the sometimes connection between coveting and stealing and how preventing the tenth one will often prevent the sixth one. But... Um, you know, I've read somewhere where uh, coveting maybe was the only commandment that, that didn't even possibly carry the death penalty, which you'd have to appreciate because nobody would be left. And, and even if that's true, you also see in this story how lethal it still is, don't you? Coveting. Whew. That can be expensive. Can it? A beautiful cloak from Shinar. How do you know it was from Shinar? I mean, they didn't write Ralph Lauren on the label, then did they? Maybe he always had his eye on one. If he ever got the chance, he'd take it. Can't find those just anywhere. Can he not see that for the snare that it is when Joshua has already told them exactly, don't take anything, silver, gold, anything. That's dedicated to the Lord. One interpretation is that this is the first city that they've conquered out of many and that therefore the spoils here will be like the first fruits that apply in other areas of life, whether you're talking about livestock or, or produce or your children, that all of this is offered to the Lord. But regardless of whether that's a proper interpretation or not, if God says don't, just don't. I mean, get down to a mentality here. This whole thing keeps coming down to, this, to these motives and all these hearts through the choices that we make are revealed. If you read 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, where it's going through a genealogy, it gets to Achan, and it says, Achan, comma, the troubler, of Israel, who broke faith in the matter of the devoted thing. Like, 
please remember when that moment comes that will define your legacy, the theme music will not be playing. Just know nobody's going to run up and say, This is it. Not this Jew pilot. This one you're really going to want to let go. You're really going to want to do your job and stick to your guns and your principles. Don't sell this one out. And now, in the Apostles' Creed, go harmonize the Gospels on that story and see how many times Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. So it, it would seem that the promised land is when you look at these two and the choices they made and what she risked, he didn't risk anything, he just snatched something. She risked a lot by faith, by courage. We think she's a hero. Canaanites don't. There's no Canaanite statues of Rahab there. She switched sides. She made a choice. She made a choice that would allow her to stay in that land and be a new her. You, if you've been in my Sunday school class before, you'll know one of the fav- my favorite subjects are the three R's. Rebecca, Rahab, and Ruth. And other than those three R's, if you look at their stories, what do they all have in common? So Rebecca decides to marry someone sight unseen and go live in the land of promise sight unseen. She's ready to upend her whole life to be there. Rahab is switching sides to stay there. And Ruth, one of the greatest, most inspirational statements in all of Scripture, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. Where you die, there I'll be buried. She'd heard about it. I know Naomi had her issues, but she must have talked about the land and the God in a way that just fueled a fire that was lit. I wonder how long. I wonder why she married an Israelite. I wonder what she had heard all those years other than they don't like us. She'd have to know what the commandments were about not jibing with a Moabite for it was like the 14th generation. Does that sound inviting to you? I mean, when you look at some of the choices people make, they don't make sense till the end of the story where you realize there's this invisible thing. How does a guy on one side of the cross start out railing against Christ with the other one and for some unexplainable reason switch sides? It's not like the man in the middle was preaching a sermon on sin or saying much of anything. There's something about God and his promises that bring out either the best or the worst in us. And you have one person here who thinks that if we can just stay quiet for for a number of days, we'll remain alive. 
risking herself, probably her family. She thinks that this God she's heard about is worth more than everything else in her life combined. Now, that's the great pearl. Upon finding one of great value, he went and sold all he had to buy that pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when one man came across it, he went and sold everything he had to buy that field. My whole life, per Noah, per Abraham, it will now be revolving around this. What do those three women have in common? They just all experienced an unexplainable gravitational pull to the promised land. Do you? Some people don't experience it even when they're there. Because what it seems like you have in this contrast, Rahab was a Canaanite who was looking to shed her Canaanite lifestyle to stay in the Lord's land with Israelites. Achan was an Israelite who was looking to adopt a Canaanite lifestyle while continuing to live in the Lord's land with Israelites. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Indeed, you see it. You don't have to wait to Romans to hear it. You see it right here. There's something about God and his promises that exerts something otherwise unexplainable on our souls, and we make decisions in faith, that deter, set on course the rest of our lives and our legacy. I mean, you're the Sunday night crowd. You know where that's headed. It's headed to Boaz and Ruth and Obed and Jesse and David and the son of David. You know, they, I guess the writer thought it was a big compliment saying, and she's lived in Israel from, from, from that time forward. Well, you know, it was a big deal. What about when she discovered in the next life how much honor God was truly showing her? The mindset of trying to live like a Canaanite while being a citizen of heaven that's not going to fly, and that, that message had to be sent loud and clear sooner rather than later. Because you know what's coming in the next chapter. You know that he and his family were stoned, and you don't have to like that story. God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. I'd find you a little suspect if it was your favorite story. But still, 36 men would never come home. Because Achan, as part of the team, the family, had unloaded their weapon, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The spirit brings down walls. And when the spirit departs or retreats, and you don't see it coming, do we not see coveting for the danger that it is? I mean, are there really any private sins? There's a sobering thought if you're me. 
Do my private sins affect you? Because to the degree that I'm standing up here talking now and to the degree that maybe I'm willing to quench God's spirit for whatever reason, you're robbed, you are the less. My children are the less for the wrong choices I make. You know when the spirit in your home just isn't what it's supposed to be, don't you? Things almost unexplainably happen. And yet here, God explained it. God explained it and then some. And so Joshua, Joshua through prayer and through calling him out publicly, though that's not our favorite way to do it, that's how God wanted it done and he wanted a message. And this is it, when you look at this story. I think you see Rahab and Achan, they're almost like ships in the night, passing each other in different directions. One's moving towards God and her legacy, quote, by faith. And one's moving away from God towards his legacy, legacy, which was, and here I quote, that he broke faith. Do we see God as the most desirable, though invisible, most beautiful, one that our soul could desire? Does God, and do his promises, do they evoke something in us? that leads us to make decisions that we would otherwise not make in faith? Or does he not, and do we negotiate our souls and our legacies away one private sin at a time? The three women that I just mentioned to, and particularly this one, every time I open the Bible, it seems like one of them staring me in the face. This morning it's Abigail, if you were in Sunday school. I mean, to to see the way she dealt with David. To to talk to David about how good God had been to him in his past and what what a future he has waiting for him. Wow. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Who can look at you and tell you the hard things in a way that you almost smile? I think God has given us Rahab's and Rebecca's and Ruth's and Abigail's to keep us in the family of by faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all of these enduring examples. Lord, give us the grace to see their hearts, to to feel the pressure that they were under on the front end of these choices as they waited for excruciating hours and days to see their fate, to find out if you were worth it. Lord, give us the courage to do the same. May we be strong and very courageous so that in the midst of tough choices, we discover what we already profess. You are worth it. And your legacy is worth far more than anything Canaan can offer.
Lord, may we be true Israelites. May we be true children of Abraham and the choices that we make. In Christ's name, amen.